Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, with Israeli forces now having invaded, we're sticking with the crisis in Gaza and have a very special guest, the Economist Defence Editor Shashank Joshi, to help us understand the situation on the ground. Welcome, Shashank. Good morning, both of you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really honoured to be here. Just to say then, the question we're going to answer this week, or try to answer, I should say, with Shashank's help is, what is Israel's strategic aim in Gaza and what might the history of Israel's past military interventions in Gaza and Lebanon reveal about what is happening today. Hamas says its fighters are involved in clashes with Israeli forces. Night and day, Israel's ground war to destroy Hamas gathers pace. It is reverberating around the region. The risks of a wider Middle East war remain. People are living in the ruins in Gaza. The Israelis insist that they hit Hamas targets who use civilians as human shields. There is now ground fighting inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, this did not unfold the way some had expected with a, a blitz of divisions of Israeli troops and tanks going in, many reservists. Instead, we've seen uh, elite Israeli troops. As ever, before we get to the actual invasion today, we're going to try and give some context to help us understand Israel's options. So the the history of Gaza, first of all, Gaza became a de facto part of Egypt after the 1948 war. It would have been part of the proposed Palestinian state if, if that war hadn't have happened. But Gaza went to Egypt and the West Bank to Jordan. Israel then took the territory in the Six Day War in 1967. And that really has set the boundaries of where we are today. Uh, so you have this prospective Palestinian state, two separate entities not connected and much further apart than they would have been under the original proposal. And no obvious solution of what you do from that moment uh, for the Israelis as well. So before we get going, I wanted to add one specific bit of framing that I think helps us understand the Israeli mindset and the dilemma that they have. And I think it's very pertinent to today's situation. Lots of parallels. So in all the way back in April 1956, you had an Israeli man called Roy Rotberg who was living near Gaza and he was murdered by Palestinians who had come over from from Gaza, his body dragged back. After that murder, Israel's chief of defense, Moshe Dayan, delivered a eulogy, which has come to be seen as one of the country's defining speeches, a kind of Gettysburg or fight them on the beaches type speech. I'll just give you a a, a quick flavor of it. 
So Moshi Dayan says, Early yesterday morning, Roy was murdered. The quiet of the spring morning dazzled him, and he did not see those in waiting for him in ambush at the edge of the furrow. Let us not cast blame on the murderers today. Why should we declare their burning hatred for us? For eight years they have been sitting in the refugee camps in Gaza, and before their eyes we have been transforming the lands and the villages where they and their fathers dwelt into our own estate. It is not among the Arabs of Gaza, but in our own midst that we must seek Roy's blood. Now I think that's just such a, a fascinating insight, and it, it defines how much of the Israeli right sees this question of what to do about Gaza, but it throws up a question, I think, that has remained a divisive issue for the, the right in particular, which is, okay, if you accept that premise that you are not going to be able to deal with uh, Gazan or Palestinian hatred for, for you, and you have to protect yourself, you know, effectively with weapons, then what do you do about Gaza? Do you pull up, do you, do you occupy it and settle it perhaps? Or do you pull out and build a wall around it and protect yourself from that? And I think in that question, in that divide, that takes us all the way through Israeli history, still to this day. And it was a great divide between Ariel Sharon in particular and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, which, Helen, you're going to sort of take us through how we got to that point in particular. Yeah, this moment that Thomas just referred to is about the debate that happens in Israel between 2003 and 2005, which leads to the withdrawal from Gaza militarily and the end of the settlements. The settlers, about 8,500, I think, Israeli settlers in Gaza are basically taken out of Gaza then. But in order to understand why that moment came about and the strategic divide behind it, we need to think a little bit about what happened between 1967 when Israel occupied Gaza and then 2005. And central to that is these two intifadas, mm. the Palestinian uprising. Gaza is a central place of resistance in the first. That in a way then leads or is part of the context in which the peace process of the 1990s, which we've talked about before, plays out and comes to ultimately fails. But as part of the early stages of that, Israel partially militarily withdraws from Gaza, leads to the Palestinian National Authority under Arafat administering a great deal of Gaza. A barrier, a physical barrier is put up to protect mm. Israel. But the second intifada then begins in the late, well, no, 2000, to get the dates right, really with that barrier being teared down. Right. And then what we see in this, and I think Shashan might have got some things to say here on this point, is we can see from like 2001 that there starts to be rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel, and we see the first appearance of tunnels, which I'm going to have Shashan come in on. Yeah, there. That, that's right. And it's, it's worth mentioning here, you talked about the Palestinian National Authority run by Arafat, and it's it's over this time uh, that Hamas, the Palestinian militant group that effectively grows out of the Muslim Brotherhood, is also quietly strengthening its position in Gaza over time in opposition to Fatah, the group that effectively ran the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And I don't want to jump the gun, of course, you know, that later in the story they, they seize power. But over this time, we are seeing Gaza's geography fundamentally change. I should say it's growing massively in population, hugely. Yeah. And I haven't got the numbers to hand, but I mean, you know, we're talking, I think, you know, huge growth in the population. It's like doubling, isn't it? Every it's doubling. I forget exactly what time period 
period, but in the 90s, it's massive growth. And at the same time, we're seeing in the south of Gaza, you get these interesting tunnels begin to develop between the south of the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula, which is, of course, this Egyptian desert. Mm -hmm. And it's by Bedouin tribes who are using these as smuggling tunnels. And that happens in the 80s when there's an accord between, I think it's 81 or something, between Egypt and Israel that seals off the border and these tunnels are the natural consequence of that. Right. And then over time, Hamas deepens these tunnels, uses them for getting in weapons, construction material, supplies, all kinds of things from Egypt, but realises they're also fantastic military assets for protection against Israel's way of war, which is dominance of the air, perpetual surveillance, precision airstrikes. If you're underground, you can't do any of those things. And so... Roughly beginning in the 2000s, this tunnel network expands and it's today it's about 500 kilometres and it's at the crux of the war that we're seeing today. But that begins in the time period, Helen, that you're describing even before Israel's withdrawal from Gaza. Absolutely. And I think that we should stress here the Second Intifada is really problematic for Israel. It's come in the aftermath of the failed peace process. There's a lot of international criticism. Even the Bush administration, so this is George Bush Jr. administration, is not completely forthright, I would say, in its support for Israel. You see in the in the military operations in Janine, is it, in 2002, um, the Bush administration is supportive, but they eventually turn very harshly on Israel. They essentially force Sharon to stop because they, you know, they, they see the damage this is doing. So, so we, you know, the, the patience runs out. Absolutely. And we're going to come back to Sharon because he's become prime minister in like 2001. We want to say something about Lebanon and he's played a significant part in that story. But if we stick with Gaza for a moment. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, is is that Israel is under tremendous international pressure by 2003. In, mm. And it, it isn't actually just the United States, but it's also, it's the Arab states with which it has a peace treaty, Jordan and Egypt withdraw their ambassadors from Israel at this point. And it's in 2003 that the then Israeli Prime Minister Sharon proposes disengagement from Gaza and ending the settlements in Gaza. And this is adopted as a policy in like in 2004. It's initially rejected in a referendum in Israel in 2004. But I think we should, between us, sort of lay out like what strategically is at stake for Israel and why Sharon and ultimately present Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu disagree about this. Well, it's to do with the demographics as well that Shashank was mentioning. I think Sharon is saying, look, this population, if I remember rightly, he says something like it's doubling every generation. Does, yeah. We can't control that number of people. We can't fold it into a greater Israel. That is too much. And we're not going to be able to occupy and settle it in a way that some on the right want to do in the West Bank. That's just not an option. So the only option left is, is his conclusion is you walled it off. And you protect yourself. I mean, he's literally, I think, saying the facts on the ground are saying we cannot hold on to Gaza. Yeah. I think the other thing to mention here is that the weaponry and the evolution of weaponry does factor into this debate. You know, if you think about the rocket threat in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, you're talking about a fairly small arsenal. Rocket attacks are beginning, but it's a small arsenal. It's a very crude arsenal. You know, it's very imprecise. And that Iranian relationship to Hamas is much, much more limited at that time. Mm -hmm. So you don't have that flood of Iranian rocket technology and indigenous production technology coming in the same way that you later do. The situation later on, it transforms. The Hamas rocket arsenal hugely grows. They have far more, and indeed, you know, they have far more today than even than they did 10 years ago. And the 
sophistication of those things changes. They can make many more of them in the Gaza Strip. And so the geography of military technology shifts as well. The threat that Sharon and Netanyahu were debating in 2003 to 2005 and the sort of the threat that comes out of Gaza is different to the threat that comes out of Gaza today. They can strike remotely much more effectively, although, of course, Iron Dome, Israel's defence shield figures into that as well. It, is it? Do you think it's a lack of imagination, like a failure of imagination or foresight? Like, who is it at fault in that divide? It doesn't seem an impossible situation to think, well, Hamas might get a lot more rockets than they than they currently have, or technology could improve. Well, this, of course, is before Hamas is in control of the Strip, right? So that debate takes place. It is it is a failure of imagination, but that debate takes place in, in a world in which one can conceive of a. Palestinian authority keeping the lid on Gaza in the way that Israel hopes they do, and indeed still hopes they do, in the West Bank. Effectively, it's collaborators in in occupation as ways to, you know, damp down on dissenting elements. And to a degree, that is what happens in the Israeli approach to managing Hamas, as we might discuss later. What I think they don't quite see at that time is just how absolute Hamas's victory will be, and to some extent the geopolitics of it, the degree to which Hamas will then, you know, Hamas in at that period was in large, was had heavy backing from the Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Yes. In money, money terms and diplomatic terms, that changes. That changes partly to do with the politics of 9-11 and the period after that. But Iran comes to the fore, and that also radicalizes and changes the situation more than perhaps was evident at the time of those debates. I mean, one thing I think is interesting here is is that it makes Netanyahu look prescient in one way, but for reasons I'm going to explain later, I, I think it actually tells against him in the end. He says in 2004, after he's moved to a position of opposing withdrawal from Gaza, he actually resigns from Sharon's cabinet over the issue. He says, I refuse, quote, to be a partner to a move which ignores reality and proceeds blindly towards turning the Gaza Strip into a base for Islamic terrorism, which will threaten the state. So he's invoking a different reality than the one that Sharon's saying. Sharon's saying reality, the facts on the ground in Gaza, mean that Israel cannot govern this place itself without doing terrible things to what it means for the Israeli state. Now, now you're saying it's going to be a place from which Israel is going to be attacked because it's going to be a de facto Palestinian state in an extremely small piece of land and in a way you can say that they're both they're both right they're yeah. both, both right, yeah. they're both right, right yeah. about this but that in a way then is the terrible strategic predicament that israel has at that point but i think if you go back to the time and particularly you look at the pressure that the americans uh, are putting on them and just how much damage the second intifada is doing and the way the israelis are dealing with the second intifada is doing to israeli legitimacy and the need that they have given how overwhelming their need for, for international support is i'm not really clear that they could have done anything else and if you then i think then look what happens in those years immediately after and we should then explain that after arafat's um death the palestinian legislative elections lead to victory for um hamas palestinian Fatah don't allow Hamas to take control. There's then effectively a civil war in Gaza over that that leads to the expulsion of Fatah out of Gaza and then Hamas takes power. And effectively, that means that Hamas is from that point on the sovereign. And I think it's worth pointing out a couple of other things going on at this time as well. In 2006, the year in which Hamas win those legislative elections, 
you also have a big Israeli war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Yeah, we're going to get to So it. the northern front is hotting up in exactly the way that it is now. In fact, it, it's worse now. But, you know, Gaza's not the only security problem. The Palestinians are not the only security problem. This huge war with Lebanon shocks the IDF because they realise Hezbollah's actually quite good at fighting. Not, you know, they're not just these pathetic non-state actors on the ground. They, they can do serious damage to Israeli tank crews. Uh, and I think the 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 other thing that, that, that also happens is you were talking about, you know, who's prescient or not. The Palestinian Authority is pretty useless, right? <laughs> they're corrupt. They're, they are feckless. They are rubbish at running the place. They siphon off a lot of money. You could imagine... They in don't 90, stop terror. They, and they don't stop terror. And, it's and a so, bit anarchic, I think, you could yeah. say. And I think that is an attraction to... Even I think that go, goes on in Netanyahu's mind when he comes back into power of, like, thinking, well, Hamas will provide some kind of order. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the big um, Israeli war in Gaza with Hamas immediately, which is Operation Cast Lead, late 2008, goes the ground invasion is in January 2009. And so that approach almost immediately fails. Israel is immediately sucked back in, goes back in, although it's a pretty short invasion. It's a couple of weeks on but the I ground. But I think it, what is noticeable there, though, isn't it, is is that they are able to get the Europe, most of the European governments anyway to be quite supportive of that military intervention. Initially, initially. And, and, that, and that is different, though. I think that is the gain that they get from withdrawal from Gaza in 2005, that it, is, it re-establishes, well, it re-establishes more international support yes. in why the do Western they, world. Why do they need European support? I think they need European support. Europe's more important at that time, of course. This is 20 years yeah. ago. So this, right. yeah, the, 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 the position of Europe in the world has to be factored in. Europe is a major financial provider to the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. So right. there's financial inducements and leverage. And I think they diplomatically care what Europeans think. You know, now there's much more attention paid to the global south, to the views of the Chinese, the Indians, the others. Mm. That wasn't so much the case in 2008. It was the Americans and the Europeans and the Arabs that were the key the trifecta that Israel really cared about. Let us just whiz back to 1982, because this is the point in which Israel invades mm. Lebanon, not actually for the, the the first time. And it has a clear, in the mind anyway, of the Israeli government's strategic aim in doing so, which is absolutely to defeat the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is based in Lebanon at the time. And they do su succeed in driving the PLO out of Lebanon. But what comes in its place yeah. is Hezbollah, backed, as we talked about in our last episode, by the Iranian Revolutionary um, Guard. So talk us through a bit, Shashank, the difficulties that Israel gets into in intervening in Lebanon. And we should say here that there's a partial withdrawal to a much, for much further, sort of nearer to the Israeli border in 1985, but then Israel stays in Lebanon until 2000. Yeah, I mean, it's a great example of mission creep, isn't it? Because you have this incursion, the classic thing throughout military history, the allure of the short war, the quick result, and it never works out that way. And and they say, we'll go in, we'll we'll push the PLO out. I think they want them to go to Tunis, don't they? Uh, and, and it'll be in and out nice and easy. And then you have hawks in the Israeli cabinet, and this is another feature of Israeli politics, coalition governments, competing factions, very influential ministers in, in these debates who use this as an opportunity to expand war aims. And the Israelis drive all the way to Beirut 
and besiege Beirut, whereupon we see, you know, terrible things transpire. Their local allies, the Christian Maronite factions in Lebanon, take advantage of Israel's presence to uh, settle their own scores with other Palestinian and other factions inside Lebanon, including a terrible massacre at the Shabarin Shatila refugee camp, which occurs after the Maronite leader is assassinated and there's a revenge attack on this refugee camp. We now know with Israel's knowledge, and that was a terrible stain on Israel's reputation. But I think Sharon in particular. And on right. Ariel Sharon in particular. But yeah, we, I think should, we should just say at this point, because it is important to the Gaza story, that yeah. Sharon was the defence minister at the time. Yes. Uh, and after the Israeli commission into what happened in the Sabra and Shatila massacres, then he resigned because Israel was found to be indirectly responsible. And a quick word on Sharon. I mean, he's such a the idea he's such service. a fascinating figure as in Israeli history. There's a great if, if, a great chapter on Sharon in Lawrence Friedman's new book on command in military history, all about his his sort of history through Israeli wars. And he's just this incredible man who just tells his commanders to to sod off. You know, he you know crosses the Suez Canal in the seventy three war. He's this sort of defiant figure, and he really comes completely undone as a minister in, in the Lebanon campaign. But I think coming back to the campaign, the essential point here is the strategic goal morphs and shifts over time, sucking Israel into this more complex, unwinnable campaign that militarily has results. They do besiege Beirut. They do get the PLO out. But in doing so, they find themselves in a campaign in which their army can't really sustain itself. They're suffering a drip of losses. And that continues even into the 80s after they confine themselves to the southern zone, as you say. And it sets the political conditions for a sort of radicalization of politics in that country, which allows Iran to find suitable, fertile ground to come in and midwife Hezbollah alongside the Syrians. And and that, you know, who if you had said to an Israeli minister, this you, you'll get the Palestinians out, of course, you'll get them all, you know, chucked out and it'll be fine. And you, you'll be out of there by 90, you know, by, by, by 2000 or something. But by the way, there will be this gigantic militia on your border that has 150,000 precision-guided rockets and has, you know, armor capability and is allied to Iran. Are you okay with that trade-off? They might say, actually, I'm not sure. Let me reconsider this from first principles. But these things set in motion, these events, don't they? That, that you can't is an always extraordinary control. strategic defeat, in a way, as if you've just set it out there. Is that, I mean, I'll, I'll be quite interested to know how Sharon's views that, because he is the man that his career comes back and he becomes prime minister and then he leads the pullout from Gaza. Is he shaped entirely by the lessons of of the war in in Lebanon? I, I don't know the answer to that, Tom, but I think what happens is there's a period of relative quiet in Lebanon that allows that some of that to be papered over for a while. I mean, you know, this is pretty this is a pretty vicious battle, right? In Lebanon we see hostage taking, abductions, killings. There's a vicious covert war between Hezbollah and the CIA. They kidnap a CIA station chief and basically, you know, torture him to death. And it's this terrible campaign. But for Sharon himself, he of course is sucked into this much more serious campaign in the West Bank, almost, you know, in the early 2000s. And he doesn't really have I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Helen, but he, he doesn't really come to terms with that there's no reckoning in Lebanon for him is there no I don't think so I mean I think the other thing you should bear in mind and this is where there is a comparison really breaks down is that whilst the South Lebanon army the Christian militia cause Israel considerable problems uh, in terms of Israel's international legitimacy they are also if you like a, a local actor in Lebanese politics with which the Israeli army is aligned in some sense. And indeed, when Israel finally withdraws, that's the end of the South 
of an army. So there's kind of like a, a mutually dependent like relationship there. But there's no there's nothing like that in Gaza. Mm. Yeah. You, this is just Israel having to do this by itself. And that raises that question of like, well, what then is the strategic aim for Israel? You can kind of even I think you're absolutely right, Shashank, in describing how the strategic aim got overwhelmed by events and geopolitical developments, not least the Iranian question in Lebanon. But you can kind of see what it was. Whereas in the case of Gaza right now, it's a lot harder because now it's much more stark and existential. Is is like who is going to be responsible for, in some sense, order from the Israelis' point of view in Gaza? And it's not clear that they've got an answer to that. Mm. I think we should stop at that point and come back to beginning with that question after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad have been building tunnels under Gaza for at least a decade. Estimated at dozens of miles long, they snake underneath many of Gaza's neighborhoods and have become known to Israelis as the Gaza Metro. So now we're going to bring the story right back to the to the present and the situation that Israel finds itself. So it's got Hezbollah in the north, absolutely frightening prospect, as uh, Shashank laid out before. Hamas in the south, players that weren't so important in the in the two thousands, like Iran, Turkey, are suddenly very important players in this wider geopolitical picture. And the policy that Israel's been pursuing since Sharon which, you know, to pull out of Gaza and just to contain the problem and in some ways, you know, deal with Hamas has just completely blown apart. And so they're faced with their, an only option as they see it, which is to go in. But from that point, I mean, what are they trying to achieve, Shashag, and how, and how are they going to do it? I think there's five objectives we could outline here and we can get into whether they are all achievable at the same time. Number one is destroy Hamas. This is an objective. Let, let's make, make no mistake. You know, this could change. They could drop that objective, but they're not dropping it now. They want to destroy Hamas as a military entity and as a governing entity. Hamas has been in charge for 16 years. It's embedded in Gaza. The Taliban were in charge of Kabul for five years when the Americans toppled them. So that, that's number one. Number two is recover hostages. There are 220 hostages inside Gaza. This completely changes the complexion of the crisis. It's not like the others where you had, you know, Gilad Shalit, one hostage in, in Gaza. This is 220 hostages, many of them Americans, by the way. Number three is minimize casualties, which is of course, a humanitarian imperative, but it's also for the Israelis a diplomatic imperative because if the casualties mount and there's already huge numbers, this means American pressure mounts, European pressure mounts. Number four is 
set the conditions for a post-war order in Gaza. That could be as expansive as a, as a two-state solution, although there's not many Israeli leaders talking about that now. Or it could be as modest as who is going to run Gaza, some sort of force that runs Gaza. And that really brings in the question of the Arab countries, you know, providing aid, maybe providing troops to govern Gaza in a post-Hamas scenario. And the fifth, which is which alludes to your point, Tom, about the new geopolitics of the region, is keep the Northern Front quiet. Keep Iran from intervening in this conflict through Hezbollah, but also through the Houthis in Yemen, Shia militias in Iraq, militias in, in Syria and other countries. Keep that Northern Front quiet, because Israel cannot handle a two-front, full-fledged war. Now, those five objectives are very hard to balance, right? A big invasion may be better at destroying Hamas, but it will be more likely to get all your hostages killed. And it will mean that your relationship with the Arab states is blown up. What the Israelis have settled on, from this is from our conversations with my colleagues, the Economist, in the last week or so with officials, is something unprecedented for them. Every Israeli war has been fought hard and fast under the shadow of an impending ceasefire. This one is being fought slowly. They are settling on a gradual incremental ground campaign, and we've seen it begin on October 27th, uh, Friday, where Israelis have gone into two places. On Monday, we saw them reach uh, Salah al-Din, which is effectively the main north-south road in Gaza. So they've, they've cut the strip into two. But this is going to be slow. And what they're telling us is that this campaign could last for months. Bear in mind, every previous invasion of Gaza since withdrawal has lasted for about two weeks. And potentially, some of them say, up to a year. In fact, I saw a piece by Naftali Bennett, who's, who's not in office, but he's a, you know, he's a, he's a member of the foreign policy thinking elite in Israel, saying this could last for five years. So it's a totally different sort of campaign. To my mind, I can't see how they will reconcile all these things. But clearly, this is going to be different to all the other wars. Can I just say one thing on that? I mean, it seems the, the one that immediately runs into difficulty with a long war is how on earth they carry on having a reasonable level of American and European support. Because however much these governments may wish to support Israel quite strongly in the circumstances, they've also got to deal with the domestic politics yes. of their own countries, which is going to make it very difficult. And I think the other issue then becomes like because there's still a partial expectation among western governments that the israelis could do something constructive towards political peace with the palestinians then that makes that very hard if actually that idea has been entirely given up on by the israeli government if they're just looking for a substitute sovereign in gaza that isn't them they might like the idea that it would be egypt but clearly egypt isn't going to be willing to do this, they might like the idea that it's going to be Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, mm. but how is that going to happen? On the, on they can the... barely run the West Bank. Exactly. Mm. So they're not in. I mean, you know, Hamas run Gaza as a dictatorship, effectively. They're not there. They can't be there. So what do you think is going on in terms of their thinking about that question? What kind of answer is there for Israel at the moment as to who will run Gaza? Well, we know governments are not good at thinking complex thoughts in the middle of a crisis. They start and then they work it out as they go along. And that's really hard when you know, you're know you balancing these objectives. But I think the signs we are seeing 
is that there is a strong desire to keep the Arab states on side. That's that's partly to do with, you know, their importance in Gaza. It's also to do with the fact that, of course, we should mention here, we saw the Abraham Accords under the Trump administration with the UAE and some other Arab countries normalizing ties with Israel. This process was underway with Saudi Arabia. Discussions were ongoing. The Israelis haven't given up on that. The Saudis have not given up on that, even though their rhetoric has has hardened considerably. I think the Israelis see here the possibility of a, a sort of big puzzle being put together involving a hard military operation that topples Hamas, and then enlisting Arab support to underwrite some kind of new government. And I suspect they will come to realise that it's only going to be possible if they are serious about Palestinian statehood again. And that, that process has, has, has collapsed and has eroded. And it's very hard to see how a government led by Benjamin Netanyahu really resuscitates it. But I can't see any other way in which a Saudi leadership or Arab leadership is willing to take the financial costs, the reputational costs of conducting a fresh occupation of Gaza on behalf of Israel, unless it's in the context of uh, a, a two-state solution. And in that respect, I was really interested to see Saudi Arabia put the Arab peace initiative back on the table or put it back into the public domain about a week ago, which is, of course, the, the proposal they made about 20 years ago, saying, look, we'll normalise relations with you, Israel, in exchange for a two-state solution. And Israel's feeling was, well, actually, we didn't, we don't need that because we got normalization without a two-state solution. But I think that they're now realizing that that's going to change. So does Netanyahu realize that? Because all of the, the coverage in Israel at the moment seems to be very critical of him strategically His and his notion that by um, keeping Hamas in power, you put off any notion of a Palestinian state permanently. Yeah, I think this is something that Netanyahu will have to reckon with. And I suspect, I don't know Israeli politics very well, but my, my gut feeling is he's not going to be around to be doing this. He, he's going to be gone. You know, I think every Israeli leader who has suffered such a serious cock up in a war like this has gone. Golda, Golda Meir or, and, 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 and others as well. And Sharon, of, you know, Sharon is the minister you mentioned. So he may not be the one doing this, but this was not just an intelligence failure on October 7th. It was a conceptual failure. Netanyahu thought that he could use Hamas to keep the lid on Gaza by buying them off with Qatari money and with a little bit of, you know, work permits for workers, a little bit of aid coming across, and he could keep the lid on it. And they were, yes, they were extreme. Yes, they were dangerous, but they were people we could do business with. That approach exploded on October 7th. Hamas deceived him. They successfully mounted a fantastically impressive deception operation, and that that blew up. So if he is going to square this circle of eliminating Hamas and enlisting Arab support to find a post-war solution for Gaza, it's going to have to be on a completely different intellectual basis. I think Bibi's just not capable of it. I think it's going to take some other kind of Israeli government and, and Israeli politics. You can see how, you know, uh, what a maelstrom it is. We just saw the other day Bibi put a tweet out in the middle of the night criticising, saying it's not my fault, October 7th wasn't my fault. And he specifically blamed the Shin Bet, the internal security chief and the IDF military intelligence chief. He had to delete the guy that has, tweet. He had to delete it and apologise. I mean, the guy has no judgement. You know, he's a bruiser. He's He, he confronts people. He, he's. I just can't see him long for this political world. Than Israel. No, neither can I. But I think that what is really, I mean, in a way, interesting about this, and just in a straightforward, like, political sense, is is he is so far away from that person who was criticizing Sharon back in like 2004. Mm, it makes it look yeah. like he was just being very opportunistic, actually, back in like 2004. Because if he really thought that withdrawal from Gaza meant that someone like Hamas 
would be in control of Gaza and would represent a direct security threat to Israel, which is what he was saying then. He would not have acted in the way in which he's done as prime minister for most of the last decade. As you said, he has effectively treated Hamas as a better partner for Israel than the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And then it looks like he's done that because he wanted to discredit the Palestinian Authority in West Bank so much that it would basically kill, politically kill any idea of a of a two-state solution. And by doing so, he created conditions in which for Palestinians, they saw Hamas as a more plausible vehicle for their political ambitions. And while that may not be true in practice, it's how they saw it. And we still see, you know, I think one of my colleagues cited a poll the other day showing that Hamas leaders would absolutely trounce Mahmoud Abbas in, in direct elections. There's still a degree of popularity, even though I must say Hamas is a dictatorship, it's an odious organisation, it still commands a degree of support. And some of that responsibility does lie with Netanyahu. But this isn't this isn't all to do with him, is it? Because there is a war cabinet. You have people like Benny Gantz, a former chief of the IDF. You have, you know, Gallant, the defence minister, Yair Lapid is in opposition. But I think that problem of reconciling these goals that we're discussing and and balancing the objective of destroying Hamas with finding a suitable successor, everyone in Israeli politics is wrestling with this. No one has a really great solution to this right now. It's not just all on Bibi's shoulders. Yeah, I was going to say that the five points that you laid out, Shashag, and you could see how there was a, a way that they all could fit together and the puzzle would come together. But another way of looking at it is they they just can't. They can't be brought together at all. So, you know, the scale of the tunnels that you set out just sounds impossible. And in 2014, they demolished about 32 kilometers of them, which was the aim of the war. And there's about 1,300 kilometers off them. So it just gives you a sense of the scale. I think just on that point there as well is one of the reasons then why that 2014 operation was quite short was actually the pressure of the Obama administration. Yeah. Um, put on, and as you say, the amount of tunnels that were destroyed in that is nothing compared to what would need to be destroyed for them to actually destroy Hamas as they. So one to. possibility here, and I'm just thinking out loud, is what if these goals will be lost? Which of these will be sacrificed? Mm. You could say, well, it'll be the one about the political conditions. They'll have a long, slow campaign to trying to destroy Hamas. They'll work towards that, and in the process, they will just accept the wave of outrage Arab opposition. They'll ride out American pressure, and they will accept hostages will die, and the northern front will escalate. There's another scenario here, which some may see as more plausible, which is that they ultimately come back to the philosophy of every previous war, which is this is a limited war to degrade Hamas and then deter it and then build a relationship deterrence through it in a ceasefire that in previous campaigns has been explicit, mediated by Egyptian intelligence, typically often by Qatari intelligence. uh, But there's ultimately a modus vivendi with Hamas. You can imagine yeah. them coming to this, realizing you're going into next year, election year in America, Biden saying, I do not want a war raging where my left wing progressive base is telling me I'm supporting war criminals and, you know, is is going to stay at home or will vote for, you know, God forbid, Cornell West or something and it will blow this whole thing up for me. And actually, you must stop. And Israel decides, OK, we've weakened Hamas. Let's just go back to that old philosophy. But you know what? I think if that happens, I struggle to see that because it will destroy Israel's one of what Israeli leaders see as their most precious commodity in their in their you know decades of existence, which is their reputation for retribution and deterrence, mm. and they will have been seen to have failed in this campaign. And I don't know if they can tolerate it's that. Is part of that a buffer zone? That's because that seems to be talked about. You know that you you end up destroying enough of 
uh, the Gaza Strip on the border with Israel that you somehow militarize it. I, I don't. But that's the kind of that's basically the Lebanon approach, right? Isn't yeah. it? From yeah, Lebanon from, was from, a, was from a, 1985 when they were drawn to that, basically creating a, what they thought of as a military security zone in southern and it Lebanon. Worked. It doesn't. Work. The difference being they did. I think, occupy a lot of that southern zone, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they did. Whereas in Gaza, the idea of floating around, I saw it floated by Naftali Bennett in his in his ravings the other day, uh, is a two-kilometre zone inside Gaza. Now, you have to bear in mind the geography of Gaza. It's a small place, right? Yeah. Like, I think six to ten kilometres wide, um, 50 kilometres long. A two-kilometre buffer zone all along the edge is like you're basically annexing, occupying, or remotely occupying about a fifth of the entire strip. And it's a, you're creating a kill zone. I don't know how the international community would feel about that. I don't know, you know, how that goes down either. But the buffer zone idea, you know, is one among the many things you could put into the bucket of containment. Contain the problem, kettle it up, bottle it, and it will still explode in some way. But I want to mm. put something else to you, Shashank, which is that there is no return, I would say, to the containing Hamas, uh, militarily weakened Hamas, because it, it wasn't just, I think, a conceptual failure on the 7th of October, it was a defence failure where the war and the Iron Dome were concerned. In a way, I'd say that Netanyahu's sort of tactical dealing with Gaza had been treat Hamas as a, a useful sovereign for Gaza and then use technology to stop them being able to make more than a few rocket attacks on Israel. And that completely failed. And so to go back to the status quo just with a weakened Hamas, seems, it, that seems not possible. I mean, how would it be possible in Israeli politics to have as few you know, Israeli soldiers, essentially, on the Israeli side of Gaza as it was on the 7th of October? It's not, that's not possible. But I will say the rocket threat has been manageable. Yes, they overwhelmed Iron Dome on October 7th, but actually they didn't kill that many people. It was a very, very small death toll from, from what we, we understand. It was the raids, the horrific raids and massacres and pogroms that killed so many people. Mm. It wasn't the rockets. Iron Dome, you know, it, it, it was, I think they fired more, Hamas fired more rockets on October 7th, almost in the entire duration of the 2014 campaign. So yes, it was an enormous barrage. Yes, they can indigenous, indigenously produce lots of these, which means it's harder to stop them getting in. But I wonder if you beefed up the, the problem with October 7th was lots of all these things. But if you had had a sizable ground force spanning southern Israel, protecting these communities, protecting bases, a bases on alert when the Fort Wall was breached, you would have significantly reduced the death toll. So I'm not so sure that they have entirely given up on this idea of missile shield to stop the rockets big force on the south to stop Gaza. Ultimately, you could argue it's just a reversal from a few years ago because it, we haven't really explicitly said this, but Bibi is presided over the most right-wing extreme government in Israeli history. And part of that effort has been focusing on the bit that really matters to right-wing Israeli settlers, which is the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. And they have diverted attention there, diverted resources there, diverted military focus there. So to if you corrected that a little bit and focused back on the south, I think you could you could argue there may be people in Israel who argue actually we can just contain this problem if the alternative is having to you know cut some sort of crazy deal that involves huge political compromises with the Arabs. No, no, thank you. We'll just go back to containment. It sounds like the the, the popularity of Hamas now means that they will if you, if you end up going towards a two state solution, you're you're talking about Hamas in the West Bank as well, and then you've got Hezbollah in the north. Israel is not a that big of a country like do, do they have the resources to manage three borders like that 
as you say, with with troops and with the Iron Dome. I mean, how many how many rockets did you say Hezbollah had? Is it well, one hundred and fifty thousand? But the bigger the bigger issue, Tom, with Hezbollah is a growing proportion of those are precision guided. In 06, almost none of them were precision guided. And just if I can have a brief direction, Iron Dome works by tracking where a rocket's going to land. And if it's landing on a populated area, it takes it out. If it doesn't, it leaves it because you can't take out every one. It, it, it conserves interceptors. If suddenly, all of a sudden, the bulk of those 150,000 rockets are all headed for a specific targeted spot and will land there with some reliability, mm. barring a proportion you can you know, dazzle with electronic warfare, then you're suddenly going to have to take out all of these rockets coming in at you. That's an impossible proposition. I think the only thing that moderates that predicament for Israel is that with Hamas, there's a sort of nihilistic, nihilistic element we saw on October 7th. Mm. With Hezbollah, because they are a quasi-state and because they are, you know, an Iranian proxy, deterrence is much more of a deterrence is much more an operative idea. It holds a lot more. Iran has a lot more to lose. Hezbollah has a lot more to lose than Hamas did. And of course, the other factor is the Americans are a safety net. They are sitting there off the, in the Eastern Med protecting you. And if, if Israel was really at risk of being overrun by Hezbollah on the northern front, let, let's be honest, the Americans will step in. They're not going to watch as Israel get overrun you know, in that but That way. was what I was going to ask you actually then, is, is where does deterrence with Iran come into this? How do you think that the present Israeli government is now thinking about the Iran aspect of this question. Oh, this is so interesting. I think they were really, really, really worried that Hezbollah was going to enter the war in a big way in the days after October 7th. My understanding is Iran was not aware of the October 7th attack. Hezbollah, uh, they were taken by surprise, but then they did encourage Hezbollah to join in. Hezbollah has calibrated its involvement so far, and the northern front seems to be quieting down a little bit, according to the Israelis we've been talking to. But there is still that risk of heavy involvement. I think the really interesting question with deterrence of Iran is, first of all, Iran's being deterred. They haven't come into this conflict. They haven't, they haven't you know, encouraged a massive barrage on, on Israel. But if you were sitting in Tel Aviv, or sorry, I should say Jer Jerusalem, because that's where Israeli decision makers are, you would ask yourself, having experienced this traumatic surprise attack that is on par with sort of Pearl Harbor or something, or Yom Kippur, of course, due to Yom, due to Yom 73, you would ask yourself, is our tolerance for an Iranian nuclear weapon different today than it was on October 6th? And I think the dynamic may have changed. I think there may be far greater fear of a nuclear-armed Iran, both in terms of the decisions it may take directly and the risk it may encourage its proxies to take by having a nuclear shield over Iran. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when the dust settles on a lot of this, we could see a big rethink in Israel about whether they need to try to take out that nuclear capability, whether they need to attack. And on the Iranian side, I think you'll see a debate take place as to whether they need to rethink whether they should press ahead or or, or show more urgency on the nuclear front. So deterrence is holding right now. It could break down. But I'm really interested in whether the, the, the sort of faith in deterrence on the Israeli side broken and whether that now shapes their approach to Iran. And where then do the Americans like yeah. fit into this? Because obviously... I mean, I've said this several times on this podcast before, I don't think it should be underestimated just how much the Biden administration was initially invested in resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal. I think I had multiple reasons for that, and it is is failed uh, in that. Has it now entirely given up on the, the possibility? What if it's got to deal with, particularly in an election year, with the possibility of, of Israel making a military attack on Iran over the nuclear uh, question, what kind of support could the Israelis possibly expect from the Americans in this particular administration under those conditions? 
I think if you were an Israeli government and you saw possibility of Donald Trump coming back into power in November 24, like a lot of people in the world, many of whom would fear it, many of whom would welcome it, you'd have reason to wait and see because you might receive far greater support under a Trump administration than you would under this administration. The fundamental dilemma for this administration is not just nuclear deal. The nuclear deal was the linchpin of a broader approach to the Middle East, part of which was normalization, part of which was withdrawal from the Middle East. Or withdrawal is the wrong word because there's such a huge number of forces there, but retrenchment, you could say, and a rebalancing. This blows that idea up. Mm. There are a lot, you know, I, I go to the Pentagon a lot. They're just, it is China, China, China all the time. And yes, CENTCOM, which is the, the kind of command in the Pentagon that deals with the Middle East, constantly says, don't forget about us, don't forget about us. You know, please remember us, we're still important. And of course, now they are because you're getting two carrier groups sucked back into the med. But the dominant feeling is we must rebalance to Asia. You know, the, 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 the Chinese threat is far too great. We cannot afford to be bogged down in the Middle East. And the dilemma is, do you now decide that by taking a hands-off approach, you are risking Iran expanding its influence in the region and and destabilizing the area and encouraging a bigger war that you then get sucked back into? Or do you stick to your guns and say, no, we're not going to keep these carriers in the Middle East in perpetuity. We are going to make sure we are diverting forces to the Pacific. And I think the instinct of Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor and the Biden administration is still to say, keep an eye on the long game. It must be the Pacific first. The Middle East is still a distraction, but that's not how it works tactically. You get sucked back in. But I don't even think it's just a tactical question. I think it's a strategic question because that presumes that Iran and China don't have something to do with each other. That presumes that if you're trying to withdraw from the Middle East militarily, that you are willing to allow China's influence in the Persian Gulf to rise. China cannot afford not to be engaged in the Persian Gulf because too many of its uh, oil imports um, come from there. What is the Biden administration going to do if Iran moves to the kind of attacks on shipping in the Persian Gulf that we saw in the summer of 2019, for instance? I don't think under these conditions the Biden administration can say our focus is China because China and Iran are part of the same issue here. I think they'll try, if Iran chooses to step up those attacks and, and also mount attacks on US forces, because don't forget in the last two weeks or so, three weeks, I think about 24, 25 American personnel have been injured in attacks. We've seen American airstrikes on not just militias bases, but Iranian revolutionary guard bases in Syria. So that process is underway. But you saw how cautious they were. They were saying, this is a very limited attack. We're not trying to change the terms of engagement. We're just showing you, please stop blowing us up or we will hit you back. But we don't want a war. We really, really don't want a war. They hope that stays. If it doesn't stay, then of course, all bets are off. They, they can't ignore attacks on shipping. They can't ignore Hezbollah entering the conflict. They, they have to deal with that. But I think short of that, talking about China's being sucked into the Gulf, there's a Cold War thing here as well, isn't there? Which is in the Cold War, the US was frequently pulled into every theatre, however marginal or irrelevant on the basis that the Soviets presented a threat there. And I think that if you look back on that experience, Mm. yes, it's true that the Soviets, you know, had influence in Angola and, you know, God knows where else. But it would have been a strategic mistake for the Americans to devote significant military resources to all of these places. And today, when the you know Chinese military challenge in the Pacific is so great, 
I, I, I just don't think you can say just because China is selling drones to the you know Emiratis and just because they are having a, an oil relationship with Iran means that you have to devote significant military resources to this region. You have to choose. You have to have priorities. Jashan, can, can we finish, I think, on a, a note of... I, I mean, I, fi- I find this quite a petrifying conversation and I, I feel like there's a like a vulnerability that we're digging at here in the West, particularly Israel seems particularly vulnerable. I mean, I imagine if you are an Israeli right now, you must, this must feel the most vulnerable they have ever, they've ever felt or since, since 67, perhaps, um, or, or 73, but America also feels vulnerable. You know, it feels stretched in the same way that Israel seems stretched in, in all ways. You know, we haven't even mentioned today the war in Ukraine, you know, which is an extraordinary commitment that the Americans are having to make and the Europeans are having to make. And then you've got China on the other side of the world. And now you've got this crisis in the Middle East. And as Helen says, all the links, I mean, Russia's links into the Middle East, China's links. Into, I, mean, I just don't know if it's possible for both Israel and the West to manage all of that at the same time and emerge with the status quo intact, like the status quo might not remain. I think that's right. I think your point about American vulnerability is spot on. Vulnerability is the right word. And the Pentagon feels this because they understand this is the first time for three years two aircraft carriers have been in the Gulf. The US has a big navy, but they are feeling the pinch. Their navy's overworked. They're being told to emphasize their patrols in the Pacific. They can't do all of this. And I think that this is why the Biden administration's focus has been on allies, get allies to do the heavy lifting. On Ukraine, they want Europeans to do more. On the Israel crisis, this is why they still feel the role of the Arab states is critical. And we saw Tony Blinken doing this intense shuttle diplomacy between Egypt and Saudi Arabia and all these other countries. And it's why on the Asian side, they they put so much weight on Australia, Japan, India. They know they cannot do it on their own. This is not the unipolar moment in the way that they could sort of do it in the 2000s. This is a, a genuinely multipolar era in which they have to rely on allies to pick up that slack. And I think the interesting question is, what if allies don't pick up the slack? Yeah. <laughs> what if Iran does become more aggressive and, you know, as the invasion goes on, if they feel that Israel's bogged down, they take advantage. You know, if, if I envision a war that lasts for several years, you have Israeli forces stuck in Gaza, you have a big war in the Middle East, you have a war in Ukraine that I think will go on for years, actually, and is going to drag on. This takes us into the late 2020s. What is the Pentagon saying about the late 2020s? It's saying that is the moment of maximum vulnerability for Taiwan, 2020, as you approach the end of the decade. So, I think you do have this concatenation of crises that begins to stretch American attention. And if they can't manage it with allies, then it may not be manageable. But world order is not is not a guaranteed thing. It's not something we're entitled to. Sometimes it occurs and comes together. Sometimes it doesn't. And maybe it won't. On that note, I think we should finish, Shashank, after all, I'm, I'm sort of with you on that, having written a book you know, called Disorders. If I was going to say. That is the norm of um, the 21st. Um, century it's been an absolute pleasure um, for us to have this conversation and we very much hope that you will come back yeah thank you so much for having me i look forward to coming back on thank you so much for listening to that episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did we've had some great questions come in over the past week please do keep them coming because we're going to turn to them in a future episode over the next few weeks please subscribe to this podcast if you've enjoyed it like it share it with your friends and family and see you next week